this episode of 92i Talks, Stacey Abrams, one of America's rising Democratic stars, sits down with Holland Taylor to discuss her politics, personal story, and new book, Lead from the Outside, How to Build Your Future and Make Real Change. The conversation was recorded on April 11th, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Welcome to New York, Stacey. Thank you. So uh, backstage, I told Stacy that I was not a professional interviewer. Furthermore, that I was not an amateur interviewer either. <laughs> and she said I shouldn't worry because she is a professional subject. <laughs> I also asked her if I was asking inane questions to just take over and say the things that she wanted to say. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm beside myself to be here at this wonderful cultural institution, which all my life has been, all my life in New York anyway, has been a beacon and a home and a haven and a, a place where I've always been on that side of the events. And it's extraordinary to be up here. I'm privileged and honored. And I know Stacy was uh, party to the, the invitation to ask me. And we had only met uh, once. And that was a very short conversation. Well, I'd been stalking you for a lot longer. Oh. <laughs> well, I think uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that, and I'm very happy about it. <laughs> I actually forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> but only for a second. Um, Stacy, you know, I think it had something to do with my doing the play about Governor Richards. And the reason why I did the play about Governor Richards is the reason why I'm thrilled to be here. And the reason why uh, Stacey Abrams is a leader I believe in and trust and know from the merest contact with her. And I think that there's a knowingness that we all have that we can access to greater or lesser degree. There is a knowingness about people that we meet. I used to say about Anne, it's not, it was Richards, it's not what she said, it's not what she did. It's who she was. And um, I know who you are. Well, thank you. I barely know you. <laughs> but I know who you are. Thank you. So, um, So uh, when, I, when it was announced that I was going to do this with Stacy, a friend of mine who was a literary man, James Grissom, wrote me an email about it. And he had been in Georgia, and he had been on the phone banks for you, I think. Oh, wonderful. And he said, uh, a woman told me that Stacy, a woman down there in the campaign, uh, Stacy had always been a face she had known at soup kitchens, food banks, coat drives, demonstrations for workers' rights, raising funds for schools and churches, and victims of natural disasters. She was, to quote the woman, another committed black woman in the areas others forgot. And when Stacy began in politics, this woman knew her, by which she said, I knew her. I had been sweating like a pig next to her for years. <laughs> James goes on, Stacy has been walking the walk a long time. 
we're just now getting to hear her voice, the talk. At a rally, someone asked Stacy how and why she was so committed to doing for others. Stacy is said to have replied, you need to meet my parents. <laughs> Would you tell us about them? So my parents are Robert and Carolyn Abrams, Reverend Robert and Reverend Carolyn Abrams. They are United Methodist ministers. They didn't become pastors until uh, they were in their, till they were 40. They preached at us the whole time, but they didn't, <laughs> they didn't become pastors until they changed jobs. My mom was a librarian. My dad was a, a shipyard worker. We grew up in relative poverty. Uh, you know, we were from Mississippi. My mom and dad worked full time, but they still struggled to make ends meet. And if you read that normal story, the idea would be we struggled and then I ascended. But really what happened was my parents made certain that we were always engaged. Uh, my, my mom would say, no matter how little we have, there's someone with less. Your job is to serve that person. My dad wasn't quite so dramatic. He was like, having nothing is not an excuse for doing nothing. And so they would take us to volunteer. We would volunteer at soup kitchens and homeless shelters. We would go to juvenile justice facilities. Uh, that stuck with me in part because my mom, actually it was my father, and you know, we would go to this, these basically children kitty prison and we asked once why we were there. My mom and dad said, look, their own parents aren't here. These are children that people forget. They need to know somebody thinks of them and remembers them. And so I watched my parents, instead of just telling us to be good people, instead of saying you should serve, my parents did that. And, and that meant sometimes we were doing without, even though we would go home, you know, we would be at a soup kitchen or homeless shelter and then the lights were off at home. And we were eating what we called mom's specialty for like the third time. We didn't realize that was just the cheapest meat and the last box of rice. But my parents never let our economic situation determine our capacity either for giving or for achievement. They're kind of awesome people. I really like them. <laughs> I, love a, I love a story about your father who was in the audience at one of your sister's graduation, and he yes. stopped yes. the proceedings because the principal had mispronounced her name. Now, I have to put this in context. There's only one, there's one high school in Gulfport, Mississippi. So all of the students in the city graduated from Gulfport High. We would graduate from the Coliseum, which is this big, huge facility. My last name is Abrams. So Andrea was the first person to walk across the stage. And they called her Angela Abrams, which is not her name. And they did not recognize that she graduated with honors. And she was one of the few African-American students to graduate with honors. Now, we're in the upper rafters. <laughs> but we can hear really clearly. And so when the principal says, Angela Abrams, my father and his dad, my grandfather, everyone's <laughs> mad, but they are really mad. <laughs> and so they get up and go all the way down, <laughs> all the way to the stage, and find the principal who's doing the, he's calling out the names. <laughs> and they make, and by the time they get down there, they're at least on the H's. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and my parents, my dad, and the thing is, when we were like, oh God, when my dad and my grandfather get up, what happens is my mom's like, yes, you go take care of this. She never does it herself, but she eggs everybody on. Go take care of it. <laughs> and so they stopped the graduation. And apparently there was a little dispute about what they were going to do. But they called Andrea back to the stage. 
they said her name properly and she got to walk across again. If we were lighter toned, she would have been red the whole time. Uh, but oh. it, it was a moment where my... <laughs> yeah, it's hard to see our blushes. But, <laughs> but we all knew the feeling. But for my mom and my dad and my grandparents, she'd achieved something and they were not going to let her achievement be diminished by someone's mistake. They weren't going to diminish anyone else's opportunity, but they taught us you don't let someone take what is yours from you. Your father is a great man. Uh, I think, I, and didn't one of your other sisters was getting an award in her professional life and they hadn't read all of her honors and he stopped that ceremony. That was actually high school. Um, <laughs> we stopped inviting him to stuff after a while. <laughs> So, and now my father's usually the mouthpiece, but my mother is always pushing him. So she, she just kind of smiles. She's like, Robert, did you hear that? And I'm like, dude. Um, so when we moved to Georgia, Leslie and I were both, I'm a year older, but two years ahead of her in school uh, anyway. And so when we got to our new school, we were fairly high achievers and we both received a number of honors. And you know, at the end of the school year, they award things. Well, they just couldn't believe that both of us had gotten honors and the top scores and lots of things. And so they kept announcing my name, but kept forgetting hers. And after the third time, when my father had to correct them, he stopped the ceremony. <laughs> and he made them, because Leslie's you know, shrinking further and further in her chair. And I'm getting righteously indignant on her behalf, too. So I may have been part of the instigation. But my father, now that time, he actually did get into an argument in the principal threatened to have him banned from the school. Um, but we were able to resolve it, and Leslie got all of her awards. That's a fabulous story. What a, what a wonderful father. Um, now, I have heard that you are an introvert. Yes. I want to know, and I sort of understand, I mean, we've, we've read about you, you're a geek, you're a Trekkie, uh, you're a scholar, you're a lawyer, oh yeah, all these things. He's a, you're, a, you're a lawyer, you're a, you're a romance novel writer, you're many, many things. So you have a lot of interests and a lot of things to keep you busy. And I assume working uh, in solitude works best as it does for most people, but you really thrive on being by yourself. And so you've chosen a life that thrust you among us, pressed to the bosom of America. <laughs> How has that been going for you? It's hard, man. Um, <laughs> here, here's the thing. Introversion, for some, it's expressed as shyness. For me, it's, it's quiet. I prefer quiet and solitude, mainly because there are those who draw their energy from the people around them. There are others for whom it, is, it takes energy. And it's not a bad thing. It's just a difference in how we engage. And I think for a lot of folks, the notion of introversion means that you don't, you don't want to be engaged. And that's not the case. I care about the world. I just want the world to leave me alone when I'm done. Uh, and, and so part of being, when I first told my, my, my dearest friends and my siblings, and my, I was like, I'm going to run for office. And they're like, you have to talk to people, right? <laughs> And my best friend, I think, laughed for like seven minutes. <laughs> I think I hung up and called her back and she was still giggling. <laughs> but, but the reality is, you, even in this moment, I'm excited to be here. I'm very glad I can't see any of you. Um, <laughs> the lights are dim enough. But you know, I'm, I'm energized knowing that the work I'm doing is making a difference. But I'm going to be very excited at the end of today to go 
and watch whatever is on the Food Network when I get to my hotel room. I, I actually understand this pretty exactly. I'm actually an introvert myself. I love when I am at an occasion and with people. I love working with a cast. I love the life of being in the theater. Uh, but I thrive on being by myself and the quiet as well. I recharge when I'm alone. Some people recharge in company. Um, and they're, they're gregarious in that way. They're fueled by it. Uh, for me, I wonder if you have this experience. I'm fine when I'm alone, and then I'm fine when I'm in the engagement. It's going through that membrane. It's going through the knot hole. That's the, and then I'm okay. <laughs> Do you have that experience? Yeah, so I rode over here today with um, two dear friends, my special assistant slash advisor, Chelsea Hall, and uh, the former chief of staff of my campaign, Jessica Bird. We get in the car, and I know they know me because they started talking. Jessica asked me one question, and then she was like, nope, this is not the time. <laughs> and so they started chattering to each other, and they, it was so important for me because I just, uh, we've had a very long day, and I just needed this moment of, it wasn't that they couldn't talk. It's just I didn't want to be in the conversation. I didn't mind listening. And it was, it was pushing through, it was knowing this is important, I want to be effective here, I want, I'm excited to see you, I'm excited to see all of you in the darkness, um, <laughs> but I needed to get to the place where it was pushing through that membrane and, and being ready to be on again. Well, I, I'll share a thing about, I, I, Ann Richards keeps coming to mind for obvious reasons. She was tremendously gregarious and was very fueled by being with people, however, she was brought up in a little town of 77 people by a, a kind of um, sunny father and a, and a kind of critical, chilly mother. And she was not brought up to be touchy-huggy-feely. She just wasn't. And so there she was, dedicating her life to making life better for people. And there was never anybody, never a public servant more dedicated than this woman. And she loved people in the profoundest possible way. But she was not a hugging kind of person. And Mike McCool, who was a state rep in Dallas, who was a great friend of hers, and his wife was a great friend of hers, and when she started to run seriously um, for office, he said, Anne, people love you, and people know who you are, and they want to hug you and see you. And if you don't start hugging people, you aren't going to win this election. I, and I, she changed her ways, and she came to be a hugger. I, I learned to be a recipient of the hug. Um, and I will mimic the hug back, but... <laughs> so my, my, my dad is very much an extrovert. My mother is an introvert. And what I've learned is that I can channel my, my dad's behavior and my mom's energy. And, and that's been wow. my sort of way of navigating. I mean, they're both, they were both ministers, and watching how they engaged their, their parishioners was really instructive to me because my dad was always out there. Yeah, he is a hugger. He's, but my mom, she understood that sometimes what people need is for you to do. They need to see that the work is done, that the service they need. And that's often how I express my feelings because I'm, I'm not always going to remember to ask you about your day or to shake your hand. Um, I practice, and in fact, I ended up, when I became a manager for the first time, I was awful at it. I had to hire a psychologist for my team because I was a really bad manager. Um, <laughs> and as I learned to get better, part of what he said was, he said, look, they, they, know you, they know you want them to be successful, but they don't know you care. 
And I said, well, I do all these things they ask for. And in my mind, utility is the highest form of love. You, you, you need something, I can get it for you. And he said, but sometimes they want to know that you care about them having it. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but okay. <laughs> and so I made a chart. I make a lot of charts. And so I made a, count, a chart and I like listed the three things they seemed to care about the most and like the day I would ask them about it. So I knew Saul had a dog and so I would ask Saul about his dog on Thursdays. Um, but I didn't want to get too regularized so I would like randomize when Saul got a dog question and you know, when Rebecca got this question, but it, it changed them. They were so happy because they needed to hear that I thought about something other than the job. And it, it took that for me. It, it didn't change how I think, but it changed how I behaved. And that, that's one of the things I talk about in the book, that sometimes the accommodation of other people means not that you change who you are, but you adapt how you behave so that you can understand how they are. And, and a, lot, a lot of times we... We are so solid in our behavior and so right and certain about how we are, we forget that engagement and interaction does require compromise from both sides. That's great. That's great. Um, in the first edition of Stacy's book, and that book will be available later tonight, as I think was said, uh, and she will sign... For, uh, for you as well. In the first edition of that book, the preface is different from the current one. The current one, you talk about the aftermath of the election. But in the first preface, you talk about uh, growing up very scarred. By, you, you were born genteel poor, as your mother would say, black and in Mississippi with a great big brain with nobody expecting you to have one and exercise it. You had a, a lot of scars and wounds as Everyone in childhood does, but you were in a particular position to receive a lot, and you were, you were quite wounded by it all and quite frightened of failing, and yet you had tremendous ambitions and desires and goals, and these two things coexisted in you in a very interesting way. I wish you'd tell the, the uh, Rhodes, Rhodes Scholar story, if you wish to. Sure. I will say this. I never thought of myself as wounded. I mean, clearly that's what I described, but... I felt it. No, and, and, and that's... I was upset, so that's... Well, I project that, that on no, you. No, 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 no. I was like, wait. No, no, I, I appreciate it. I was like, whoa, it probably was. It was crappy. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, it was just... It, it was what it was. So the story I start with, uh, when I was in college, I was at Spelman, which is this amazing college, and... Um, and... It, I was asked to apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. I'd won the Truman Scholarship as a junior. I accidentally won the, the Truman. I did not know what it was. It just said they gave you money for public service. And I'm like, well, I'd do that. So let's see if they give me money. <laughs> and it wasn't until I won the scholarship and went to Missouri to meet the other Truman Scholars, I realized, wait, this was a big deal. And I got in trouble because I didn't tell my parents about it. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, they knew I was in Missouri, but I didn't tell them like they didn't know what the Truman was and turns out other people's parents were like flying in and driving up and I was like, oh, I'm gonna be in so much trouble. <laughs> and I actually gave the, the sort of commencement speech and this, <laughs> this young man who's just one of the most amazing people, his name is Greg Bear. He literally calls his parents Mama and Papa Bear. They're that kind. 
Well, Mama Bear writes my mother the most beautiful letter about my speech and about the week and how proud she was of me and how sad she <laughs> I get a call from my mother. She's like, what did you do? I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> so it was in that space, <laughs> having been outed by Mama Bear, that um, I met all these amazing young people who'd had these experiences. I mean, like one person like saved a small village in Nepal. I mean, it was, these are really awesome folks. And they were applying for the Rhodes Scholarship. And I'd heard of the Rhodes, but I'd never met anyone who had it. And I never thought of myself as someone who would apply for it. But the head of the Scholarship Foundation said, you should apply for it. And I laughed, I mean, politely, but I was like, yes, but no. And then he called the president of my college and she called me to the office and said, we want you to apply for the Rhodes. And I said, no. Thank you. And then she enlisted. It was kind of like what Chuck Schumer's doing to me. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was a coalition of people who were enlisted to tell me to apply for the roads. <laughs> and finally, just to make them leave me alone, I was like, fine. But the, the, the narrative they used was, look, no one has ever gotten through Mississippi. There had never been a black woman who had been the nominee from the state of Mississippi. And they said, we think you can be that person. And I was terrified because I did not want to fail. It, this was bigger than anything I'd imagined. I'd heard of Rhodes Scholars. I was not one. I didn't come from that background. I didn't speak another language. I could run, but only if someone chased me. Um, <laughs> like, I didn't meet any of the things that you were supposed to be. But, you know, at that time I gave in to, I was like, you know, I would talk to my mom and, and my dad, and you know, they were like, look, you know, if you want to try this thing, try it. And so finally, I was like, fine, I'll, I'll screw my courage to the sticking place, and I'll apply. And I got an interview. And I'm like, darn, I did not do this well. So then I, I go to Mississippi, and my, my parents drive up from uh, Gulfport to Jackson. And we're in this hotel that my parents could not afford. Uh, and I go to do the interview, and they ask me all these questions, and I do not, like I said, I don't know in more ways than I've ever said it before. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I do not know. Um, <laughs> that is information I do not possess, and I cannot provide it. <laughs> and so I finish the interview, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to get this. And they keep you, it's this Tor this like torture chamber where you're in there with everyone else and all of you are remembering all the ways you suck. <laughs> and it's like four hours, so you're just, you're just marinating in your suckitude together. <laughs> but you don't want to tell anybody else because you're like, maybe they sucked worse. <laughs> and then they call you all together and they sort of march you out like you know, a firing squad. And you're standing there and they announce in front of you who, who was selected, and only two people were going to be the nominees to the, the region, to Texas. And they said my name. Mm. Mm. And I'm like, did y'all hear me in there? <laughs> <laughs> and so I became the first black woman in Mississippi to be the nominee. And so... So I leave, I go home to the, I go back to the hotel and I walk back and I go see my parents and it's dusk and I tell them, you know, I've, I've been nominated and my, my parents start to cry and I'm like, they're crying, so I'm gonna cry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and I'm asking why, and my mom says, she's like, look, I'm the only person in my family to finish high school. Your dad is the first man to ever go to college. And my father is dyslexic, and so you know, he didn't learn to read really well until he was in his 30s. Uh, because they didn't diagnose dyslexia when in Mississippi and segregated uh, Mississippi in the 50s and 60s. And my mom said, you know, we don't care if you win. We're just so proud that you try because you are, you've come further than we ever dreamed we could be. And to be able to sit in this hotel with you and to watch our baby get this thing that's what we want for you. It's not whether you win, it's that you had this opportunity. And I'm glad they felt that way because I did not win the roads. <laughs> um, and then the process, I mean, there was a lot of racial overtones to the process uh, in Texas. Texas is a very complicated place. But it, it crushed me because I, I didn't want it and then I wanted nothing else. Mm. And then I didn't get it, mm. and it clearly prepared me for 2018. <laughs> <laughs> but the, when it happened, I actually turned down scholarship offers to graduate school at Harvard and at Stanford. I'm sorry, Harvard. Yeah, I applied to Stanford too. University of Chicago. I applied to lots of places and decided not to go because I wasn't sure I was smart enough. But Harvard was really the place. I, I was like... I'm a, I'm a big fish in a little pond. I am not capable of swimming with these other intellects. And it was Mr. Blair, the evil man who made me apply for it in the first place, who at a summer program that, that following summer said, Stacy, you know, why didn't you go to Harvard? And I said, oh, you know, I just decided I wanted, I like the weather in Texas. And yeah, he, he almost said the, the pejorative that you're all thinking. Uh, but what he said is, he said, I, well, he actually did. He said, I hope it's not something stupid like you don't think you're smart enough. Mm. Because what happened to you in the Rhodes process is not about you. It's about them. And having him tell me that just changed everything. And he said, I need you to apply to Yale. And I'm like, Yale Law School? <laughs> and he said, yes, I want you to apply. And I'm like, they will not let me apply, let alone let me in. And he said, just try and I was like, fine, I'll apply, and then we'll have another thing I failed at. And they let me in. I was like, okay, maybe Mr. Blair has a point. <laughs> and, and so I, I say this as a sort of way back to 2018, which is that that was a failure, or so I thought. Not winning the roads to me was about how smart I was, how capable I was, what I was, what I was supposed to do. I don't think it's a failure. I think I didn't win, and I think that probably there were ways I could have been better. But just as with 2018, part of what I want folks to understand is that it's not just what happens, it's how you process what happens. It's how you navigate it and use it to galvanize. And so, here I am. A lot of Stacy's book is about dealing with the inner voices. Uh, that we all have to greater or lesser degree, depending on many things. Uh, she ha deals with a lot of voices asking her to do a lot of things, scaring her off of things, prompting her to do things, and all the while, uh, all the while achieving really remarkable things. I like how I'm getting this because I can hardly read them, so. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the book also is full of surprises because 
It turns out to be a kind of a workbook. She has exercises and suggestions for looking at what you want, how to marshal yourself and your forces. And uh, Stacy cannot help herself, apparently, because she wants to help you and me and everyone to achieve what we want. And I think when I say, I know you, I know you. And she is a person who wants to make life better for people at her core. And the book is full of that and full of the charm that you've just seen. And I, I couldn't recommend it more. Um, you, so you fell forward. I did. And you continue to fall forward. And I trip over random patches of air all the time. <laughs> well, um, your so-called failure to win the gubernatorial race seems to place you in a perfect, perfect position to be president of the United States of America. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> uh, we, we, all have, um, we all have a lot to, uh, to learn from failures. And of course, they rarely are literally that. They are many different things. Um, you're one of six. You took care of one brother. Was Richard the one you were Richard was my, of? he was my assigned. So there are six of us, uh, three girls, uh, two boys, and another girl who was confused about which one she was for a minute. Um, <laughs> so uh, there's sort of a natural break in age. There's 12 years from the oldest to the youngest. And my parents, my mom assigned each of us to a younger sibling to be your charge. So that meant making sure they got up in the morning, that they ate breakfast, that they did their homework, that they got dressed. It, much, it saved on nannies because we couldn't afford one. Uh, and so Richard was my charge. So he's the fourth. Um, so Andrea, the oldest, was assigned to the youngest because she was breakable. So, you know, um, <laughs> she had her. Leslie was assigned to Richard, I mean, to Walter, and I had Richard. And it was an extraordinary thing because I love all of my siblings, but I have different relationships with each one of them. And my relationship with Richard has always meant something to, uh, so much to me because he too had a learning disability, uh, a version of dyslexia. And it was my older sister, Andrea, actually, who realized that if you read to Richard more than, if you gave him more than once to read or understand something, he could get it. But Often in class, he would miss things, and it was because the, the way concepts organized themselves for him was different. And she's, our older sister's just an extraordinary person. And so with Richard, it was sometimes my job to just sort of work with him to make sure he was getting it done, because Richard's so smart. Uh, but it can be very isolating, especially in our family, to not be able to do things immediately. Uh, but he's also one of the kindest people I know, and he's very quiet too. Uh, except, you know, he was, we, this is back, anyone under the age of 40 will not understand this, but there were these things you have to use to turn on the TV with a knob. <laughs> and he wasn't allowed to turn the TV on. And he loved Saturday morning cartoons. But he did not understand that they don't start until 7, and he would wake up at 5. <laughs> and he would come and stand by my bed like some specter or zombie, <laughs> just staring at me. And he was like, Stacy. I'm like, Richard, it's not on yet. Every Saturday. <laughs> Stacy, stay. I'm like, I'm like, if I hurt him, they will know. And so, <laughs> so finally, I would just have to get out of bed 
and walk into the living room with him, holding his hand. I would turn on the TV to the static because there was nothing on TV on Saturday at 5 a.m. And that child would stare at the static until the cartoons magically appeared. And I love him now, but I did not like him then. But he's now a social worker who works with homeless children, homeless adults, young adults in uh, Georgia. And watching him with these young people who've been tossed aside by community, a lot of them are ex-foster kids who've aged out of the system. They have such potential, but they are so lost. And I'm just so proud of how well he sees them and imagines more for them. And then when I see him with his children, with, he's got a, younger, a son and two daughters, and just how deeply he loves his family I just remember, like, this is someone who is patient. My God, was he patient, because it was two hours before TV started. <laughs> but he's also just committed to being there for those who need him. Well, you have a wonderful set of brothers and sisters. Your, your, your three sisters are all professional women. One is a judge. She was a yes. prosecuting attorney. The other is an evolutionary biologist. That's the youngest. And the other is a... The eldest is a cultural anthropologist who's also the VP of diversity at her at Center College. So tremendous, tremendous achievers. They're they're very afraid of my parents. And <laughs> you have another brother who presents a very interesting problem for you and has also allowed you to learn a lot of things. Would you tell us about that? So I, I would I would recharacterize. Walter I wouldn't say he presents a problem. Walter is Walter's brilliant when he was eight or nine, we got this Moravian star for Christmas from someone. And it's this complicated puzzle thing. And my, my dad looked at it and he was like, I don't know why somebody gave this to us. We're not going to put this on the tree because he couldn't figure out how to put it together. And it had wiring and everything. And I think we were all off doing something else. And we come back in the room and Walter has assembled it. He's figured out how to wire it. Just from looking at the package, mm. that's his mind. Uh, but Walter also has uh, bipolar disorder. And he was undiagnosed for most of his childhood because he had early onset diagnosis, so it was about 15 or 16, we believe, when the onset happened. We didn't have health insurance, plus there's no conversation often in especially poor communities about mental health and certainly not in our high schools. And so he went undiagnosed, and more importantly, he was t typically just treated as a bad black kid. And mm. so mm. what were cries for help were treated as just him being a bad kid. My parents knew he wasn't bad, but they also didn't have the language or the tools to understand what he needed. And he did what so many young kids do, young people with mental health disorders, he self-medicated. He started out with alcohol and graduated to drugs and to harder and harder drugs. And Walter has been in and out of trouble since college. He went to Morehouse College. I mean, Walter's incredibly smart, but he dropped out before his senior year He's been in and out of rehab, in and out of jail. I've you know, funded a lot of his rehab. And I can tell you that rehabilitation is important, but so is systematic change for those who need the support because it's not enough to go to rehab. When you are dual diagnosis, rehab only addresses part of it. But if you don't address the mental health challenge, treating the disease of addiction without treating the disease of mental health means that you're only solving half the problem. And unfortunately, in our society, the solution for the other half is prison. And so Walter's been in and out of jail, uh, which for parents who've been a part of criminal justice reform and have done such an extraordinary job, 
it feels sometimes, I think, for them like failure, but it's not failure. Walter is not lost. He's hurt, and he's 40, and has challenges before him that we can't fix. And I think that's the hardest part with Walter. We can't fix him. He can't fix himself, but we can, prevent, we can present him with tools. But he can't get access to healthcare because he's an ex-offender and he lives in the South where we have an expanded Medicaid. He gets in trouble and he doesn't get a chance to make up for it. He violates his parole and he goes back to jail. And so he's on this cycle where like so many thousands of people, but especially black men, his very disease traps him and so does the system that will never let him not be in trouble. And I can only imagine the sense of hopelessness of knowing that, but also there's a helplessness that we can't fix it for him. I can't love him enough. I can't give him enough money. I can't solve this for him. But I want to make certain that we have systems that understand that this is a holistic problem so you can't have a single source answer. I can't tell you how... I, I think it is so wonderful that you talk about this, Stacey. Uh, it's not really, is it? Oh, you, my goodness. You have a few more minutes. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I just want to finish this one remark. I, I think it is so great that you talk oh. about this, Stacey, uh, that you talk about your brother, because it's just another way to know you, another way to learn about your response to this can in, illustrate uh, things for us all. There's billions of people who can identify with this, it makes you part of us, us part of you. And I, I don't think everyone would discuss it openly. And it's so important that you do, and I'm glad that you do. Thank you. I mean, look, I, thank you. Walter, all of us have a Walter. Some of us are Walter. <laughs> and part of the point of the book, part of the point of my campaign, of the work I do, is that if we don't talk about these things, we can never solve them. And if our leaders are ashamed to tell real stories, how can we trust them to have real answers? That's, that's the problem. And, and, and I want to say this. Walter gave me permission to tell a story. I didn't... There, there's something that, that to me feels exploitative to tell his story for my benefit, and that's not what this was. One, I knew that there were people snooping around, and I'm not ashamed of my brother. I'm sad for him, I worry for him, I, I pray for him, but I also wasn't going to let his story be told by someone who did not know him. And that was also my responsibility. So we have some questions. If a Democratic president wins in 2020, what do you think should be the first major policy objective they should push? And why is that what they should spend their political capital on? Thank you from Jamie. We have to save our democracy by fixing voting rights in America. If you want an answer to climate change, if you want to end the economic insecurity of our communities, if you want to address criminal justice reform, every single public policy has to have voters. 
you have to elect leaders because the president cannot solve these problems, but the president can help lay the predicate and the foundation so that in your school board, in your city council, in your county commission, in your state legislature, in your governors, in your Congress, if you can't elect leaders who can represent you because you cannot vote, then you are voiceless. And so that is the solution. People say, oh, you're, you're, you talk about voting rights all the time. I'm like, yeah, because I have all these things I want done. And they will not happen if the very people who are the victims of the inactivity and the ineptitude sometimes of our leadership, if you can't change that, then you can never solve that. And so fixing voting rights, if you spend all of your political capital there, you get everything else. Uh, and I know, Stacy, there are so many programs that you are caring about and going to work on, about education and taxation and all kinds of things, but I know that, the, that after the loss of the gubernatorial election, um, you went to bed and had some ice cream for a few days, and then 10 days later, within 10 days, she had formed a not-for-profit organization called uh, Fair Fight Action, which is all about fighting voter suppression. It has a staff of 20. It is uh, on the ground fighting, and uh, it, you joined with um, Care in Action. Is that the name of it? The, the other so Care in Action, Care in is, Action. that's so, the National Domestic Workers Association who did so much work to turn, to get domestic workers registered to vote and engaged in Georgia. So she created this nonprofit and then within two weeks had an enormous lawsuit where uh, she, her organization, which was now established, Fair Fight Action, joined with Karen Action to wage a lawsuit against the Secretary of State, the office of the Secretary of State of Georgia and the State Election Board and it, I've read this, I've read this lawsuit. I haven't finished it. It's a very long document, about 60 pages. But it is, a, I have never read a suit. And it was a, a, a majestical thing to read. <laughs> she's the author, of course. Oh, I, no, I get no credit for writing it. I, I was sad the whole time. Well, um, <laughs> but I hired some really amazing, but I hired some really amazing lawyers. And they, they, you were obviously, and I was a part of the conversation. You yes. were crafting it. But it, it <laughs> it's so interesting because it, it defines what the situation is. It defines what the laws are, what the correct, correct behavior is in elections. It defines what the jobs are of the individual people. And then it talks about all the ways in which those things were besmirched, disgraced, and torn asunder to keep her from becoming governor of Georgia. And uh, it sues on behalf of people who have spent time and treasure getting her elected. Um, and, and I think after some period of time, some 156 congregations, was it? Uh, so 500. Oh, 500. So. It's OK. No. Uh, so 500 con congregations, which had also worked hard for her election and worked for getting out the vote and applied their time, their labor, and their money to do this, also have joined in this lawsuit because they have a reasonable complaint. So I, I think this lawsuit is spectacular. We might have to hire you. You're really good at it. <laughs> um, so, part, part of the lawsuit, and I want to be clear, success in this lawsuit will not lead to me becoming governor of Georgia in 2018. No, we'll take care of that. <laughs> But what it does do, it says that individual laws may on their face be neutral, but their application can have effects that serve to deny the right to vote. And that when yoked together between denial of registration, denial of 
balloting places, showed, shutting down polling places, rejecting absentee ballots, that a system has been developed in Georgia that serves to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of people. And that that disenfranchisement, much like Brown versus the Board of Education, demonstrates that while de jure, by law, you're permitted to vote, if by fact and by application, that right is not made real, then this is in violation of the Constitution and it has to be solved. That's the goal. This is not signed. It looks like a, perhaps a young person's handwriting. <laughs> or perhaps not. Why do voters not punish candidates like Brian Kemp, who actively work to take away civil rights? Because there are populations who believe they benefit from the other half of the population not having their rights. When you think of power as zero sum, then it's strong. If you believe power is zero sum, then if, you, if they have it, then you don't. And that is the architecture and the theory that is espoused by, I would argue, many people in a certain party. Uh, and, and, I mean, but, but if you look at the history of voter suppression in the last 20 years, it's been largely pushed by Republicans. It's not, it's not endemic to Republicans. Democrats screw up too. But the assiduous application of voter suppression has largely been through Republicans because there is a change in our country in demographics and demographic change tends to benefit Democrats. And so the demographic changes have led to the ascendancy of folks like Brian Kemp and Chris Kobach and others who make it their mission to deny the right to vote to communities they believe will not be sympathetic to their holding on to power. The alternative theory is that power can be inclusive and shared, that the expansion of power therefore creates opportunities for more people. That's the theory I hold to, that if you solve my problem of poverty, I can buy more of your stuff. <laughs> if you make sure I'm not sick, I can show up to work and I don't give all of you rubella. If you... <laughs> If we save the planet, we live. <laughs> and it's that alternative theory of power that leads to folks like myself fighting so hard to expand the franchise. And by comparison, those who believe that it is zero sum, that your success or that, that the success of this community means the diminution of another community's power, that's why folks like Brian Kemp and others like Donald Trump, get elected. I could, I could listen to you talk about how things work forever, Stacey. It is really... I mean, they only have to make us go home. It, <laughs> it's really, really fabulous. Um, it's interesting, uh, as I said, Stacey can't help herself. When, uh, when she started businesses, when she was at Yale Drama, uh, Yale Drama School, where's my... <laughs> Yale Law School. She had, to make a, she had to make money during that time. She wrote romance novels. And she also started some small businesses. And I thought, entrepreneurial. But of course, the businesses were something that helped people. Uh, it was a small company that paid invoices for other small companies that couldn't wait for bigger companies to pay them. So it collects the invoices and pays them. And there's some premium attached to it. But these small companies get their money when they need it. Uh, and also, she, she built a business that sold prepackaged formula and bottles for obviously very busy, busy working mothers. So, uh, 
But when she was specializing in law, she specialized in tax law. And I remember thinking, that's so dry, that's so <laughs> unexpected. Why would she do that? But then she is writing these romance novels on the side, but still I thought, tax law, I don't. <laughs> but then I come to understand now that she's studying tax law because her expertise is in nonprofit organizations and tax-exempt uh, business, businesses that do good for the world. So there, that's why she took up tax law. I love that. <laughs> what do you see as America's role in the world? <laughs> Go. <laughs> what are we doing or what should we be doing? Well, so I here's, think here's, what do you see wait. as our hopeful? Look, back in college, actually right after I finished college, I had a conversation with a dear friend of mine. He was the first person to credibly suggest to me that I should think about running for president. That's when it went onto my spreadsheet. And he, he, you know, it, it was, he was like, I, he asked me to go to lunch and we were having lunch and he was really smart. I thought he was cool, but he was this Republican. I'm like, why are we talking? But I want to get to know him because he seemed interesting. He's, a, he's since converted. He's now a Democrat. Um, <laughs> but at the time, he and I had this just very vehement argument about domestic policy versus foreign policy. He was largely a Republican because he was interested in foreign policy, and I was very much wedded to the importance of domestic policy. And what he said to me is, you cannot lead a country if you can't understand the world. And I did not have a credible comeback, so I was like, fine, what do I need to know? And he gave me a stack of foreign affairs to read, and he made me subscribe to foreign policy. And I eventually ended up becoming a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. I've been to a bunch of countries. <laughs> I've done a lot of work in foreign policy. I've, I've written articles on, on foreign power and its intersection with technology and, and how we think about ourselves. I, in grad school, I wrote about Brazil. So I've, I've thought about the role. We, for a long time, were the moral leader, if not always in practice, then at least in construct, meaning that we aspired publicly to be better. We stumbled often and the challenges endemic with our racial and gendered policies and the way we treated the LGBTQ community, the way we treated the disability community, the way we address marginalized communities, especially the immigrants, that's always been part of our challenge. But what has held us out as a beacon is our aspiration to be moral and good and better. And our economic ability to shore up those who were trying to join us was always critical. We invested in places that had no benefit to us because it was good to have them try. And so where I'm deeply saddened by our current state of affairs is our public disinvestment in good. We, have, we are threatening to strip away money from countries in Central America because they have problems. Instead of doing what we should do, which is investing to minimize those challenges or at least provide the space to address those challenges. We threaten NATO with pulling away from our compact because we just don't like that they're not spending enough money. As opposed to saying we believe that war is wrong or at least that the threat of destruction to democratically elected regimes is wrong and therefore we will invest as a signal that we will always show up to defend democracy and thus the right to be your own. And so, and 
you know, if you watch what's happening in China, China is doing extraordinary investment in, in Africa. They are building more infrastructure. They are stepping into the space of serving as an intercessor and a supporter in places that we have abandoned because of xenophobia and a racist belief, but also because of a cheapness and a parsimony to our spirit. That is something we have to change. And so what I would argue is our role is to be an investor in good, to be a beacon for better and to always be, the, the, if not the conscience, then at least a nation that stands for aspiration to hire more. Mm. If you ask. Wonderful. Wonderful. What is the one thing no one asks you that you want us to know about you? You're pretty good. Um, I mean, the tax piece. When I, talk, I spend a lot of time talking about voter suppression, I love tax policy. It is, I do. And here's why. When, if you lived in my district when I was a state legislator, my town hall meetings, we spent at least 10 to 15 minutes at the beginning of every town hall meeting talking about tax policy. And here's why. How a nation spends its money is often determined by how it gets its money. The fact that we live in a nation that does not charge and collect taxes from its corporations signals that we give primacy to those corporations over the workers who make those corporations real. Okay? And so until the people understand why taxes are, they are intentionally so arcane, they are intentionally obscure and, and so difficult and complicated that we just abandon the pursuit. That's why most of us don't know M theory, um, string theory for those of you who don't do physics. Anyway, it's things that seem so complex that we just abandon the pursuit before we even dig in, but tax policy structures everything about our lives. It encourages marriage. It encourages or discourages child raising. It makes determinations about whether you get an education and how. The fact that children go to underfunded schools is directly related to a property tax system that gives primacy to your ability to own a home, okay? We can argue about tax rates, whether we should tax the wealthy or not, but we need to be arguing about tax structure. Who do we value in our society? The people who make it or the corporations who hire, who employ us? And I would argue that our beginning and fundamental has to be that we look at the pre-tax structure of whether workers' incomes are sufficient to sustain their lives and therefore their communities and therefore our nation. And I wish I could talk about taxes more, but we're running out of time. I'm kind of dazzled over here. <laughs> What's your favorite romance novel, Stacy? It is called, so it's by Nora Roberts. I, I love her. Um, so Nora Roberts writes a lot of novels. I mean, she's written, I think, every romance novel ever. Um, but she has won and I swear because you just asked me that, I can see the cover, and it is my favorite book. And I'm gonna come back to this because I'm about to, I was about to say Hidden Sins, I'm like, but I wrote that one, that's not it. Um. <laughs> Do you think you might ever write a, a novel novel, just a piece of creative fiction, because you 
love to write. Oh yes, I've started. I've started uh, traditional novel. Um, I've started. I've got a. I'm about halfway through a teenage superhero novel. Um, I'm a third of the way through a middle school um, sort of. So the question was, you know, what happens if you forget something like I just did? Where does it go? And so what if it goes to this alternative universe where... <laughs> where they, my socks are. Exactly. Where your socks are. Or if you erase something, what, you, when you erase something from a piece of paper, where does it go? And so there's this whole universe where it shows up. And these middle schoolers have to figure out how that's connected to their society. <laughs> anyway, so I'm in the middle of that one. I, I started writing romance. I, I wanted to write a spy novel. Publishers at the time did not believe that women read or wrote spy novels, and they certainly weren't going to publish one with an African-American heroine. So I just made my spies fall in love, and it worked. <laughs> and I could sell it as romance. And I was able to sell those books, so I became a romance novelist in part because people kept buying them. I have, and then once you start doing it for money, you either have to give them a book or their money back, and so I had to keep writing the books, and then I became Democratic leader, so I couldn't keep writing in the way I wanted to write, although I did write another book after that that is a, a legal thriller that talks about what happens if a Supreme Court justice falls into a persistent vegetative state. Wait a minute, is this published? It, no, because... <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the thing is, if you're in a persistent vegetative state, under the Constitution, you cannot be removed from office. You can, I'm just saying, <laughs> good coma never hurt anybody. Um, oh, sorry, sorry, that was horrible. It, in, at least in the book, the whole point of the book is that he's in a coma. But I, I haven't published it yet because at the time nobody cared what I wrote. So maybe somebody might care now that I've, I've, my name is slightly bigger. So. I wonder if you will ever have uh, time to just write a novel as an artistic creation. I, I would love that. I, I would love that too. Um, do, you, do you sleep much? I do not, and I hear about this from my doctor. Do you, <laughs> is it because you genuinely don't seem to need it or because you just have so much to do that you just set the alarm and get up and do it? Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, when I was younger, I, well, younger, I truly didn't need much sleep and I had stuff to do, so I did it until I was done and then I went to bed. And sometimes that was three hours, sometimes it was five hours. Apparently at 45, your body's like, nah. <laughs> um, and so things start creaking. I'm like, I didn't know that was a muscle. Uh, and you know, I am, I am actually healthy, but I am at that tipping point where I need to do better by my body. Um, I can't do the things with the uh, energy that I used to without there being a toll. And so I am trying to sleep more. I'm, now up to about f six to seven hours, two to four times a week. Um, eight hours just sounds stupid to me. I don't understand. <laughs> I just, I really, I try. And my body's like, what are you doing? Uh, but yeah. Do you tend to go to sleep early and get up early or stay no, up late? I stay up late and I wake up at roughly 6.47 every morning, no matter what time I go to bed. No matter what time you go so to bed. So if I go to bed at two, at four, at yeah, I, my body wakes up at the same time. I've been pushing it a little bit, so I'm dozing, which is not good for you because then you become groggy. So I'm trying to go to bed earlier and see how that works. It's only been two weeks of practice, no, three weeks. <laughs> uh, and we've been traveling a lot, so 
you know, my experiment does not have full information yet. Your scientist sister would probably tell you the body actually... She talks too much. <laughs> yeah, 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 the body needs restoration. Cortisol levels are higher when you don't sleep. That was my speech. Well, and you're right, but there's got stuff to do, man. You know that Winston Churchill took a nap every afternoon, even during the war? I am good at napping-ish. Okay, so, That's so during good, the campaign... That's good, restoring. Stop shaking your head, I tried. <laughs> Look, if I have call time, I will nap. Uh. <laughs> um, I will take a nap in a minute if I've got to call people for money. But um, <laughs> I got better at napping for a brief spate during the campaign, and then I fell off. And I, but I do believe in naps. I think naps are restorative and can be very helpful. Well, they were for him. He got into his pajamas and got into bed uh, properly. Yeah, he was a show-off, but... <laughs> Uh, uh, we have to wind it up, and I would like, if I may, to ask the last question. Um, I'd like to know what you think of a daydream I had about you. It, <laughs> it, it's, a per, it's a persistent dream. It's kind of amusing, and I like to think about it. Um, in the next few years, I know is a very complicated time, and my daydream doesn't start there. Okay. It starts after that. For, for some reason, I love to dream of you uh, becoming George's governor and serving for at least one term because I think you would do uh, unimaginable good for Georgia, the people of Georgia, and I think that you would pull the tiller on the South in a wonderful way that would be life-changing and altering for America. And then I would like you to be drafted by the Democratic Party to serve uh, to run for the presidency of the United States of America. I would like you to be governor of Georgia because you wanted to be, and because, uh, you know, the, I think a senatorial job, I think I heard Ann Richards say something like, this is the long game, it's strategizing, it's making laws, it's a lot of committee meetings, and you are an executive, as she was. And I would love to see you in a great executive position, holding it for some years and learning what you would learn from it and serving and doing the good that you would do at it and preparing yourself to, to, um, to lead the nation, which I think you are very capable of, and I look forward to it very much. And then I imagine uh, after the presidency, you would take some time to, <laughs> to, to travel and do the many things that you probably long to do. And then after, and write that novel that I'm waiting to buy. <laughs> and then after uh, the appropriate period of time, I would like you to go on the Supreme Court. <laughs> and after that. How old do you think I am? <laughs> I would dearly love it if you would become the first woman Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. That's my dream. What do you think? I will take it under advisement. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, I, I want to serve. My job is, what I'm called to do is to figure out how to fix problems. I wrote Lead from the Outside because I had folks asking how did you do this, you know, and how can I? And so my answer was, let's write a book with worksheets. 
Um, I ran for governor because I think poverty is immoral. I think it is a solvable problem. And I think if you can tackle... <laughs> I think governors have extraordinary power to shape social policy. Uh, I remind folks that Stand Your Ground came into being because of a governor in Florida. Mass incarceration started with a governor in California. The erosion of the social safety net started with a governor in Wisconsin. And imagine if we had a governor who wanted good for our people. Um, I believe that the presidency is an extraordinary role that can shape not only how we are seen, but how we believe ourselves to be. And I believe the court is, is critical, which is why the Senate calls me. Um, because if we do not have a judiciary that values our rights and protects them, uh, then we are at the mercy of racism and sexism and xenophobia and homophobia and all the social pathologies and ills that have fractured us for so long. I am 45, I have a vast imagination. I'm imagining a little bit of time left on this earth, so I'll see how many of those things I can get done. <laughs>